Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, and I'm Craig Settles. I'm your host for today. I want to thank everyone for um, attending today's show. We're going to have a really good show today. Uh, lots of valuable information, and we're going to well, we're going to roam into the wireless space today and talk very uh, in much detail about wireless uh, technology and why, how it relates to broadband. Um, today, our guest is uh, Rick Harnish, who is the executive director of. WISPA, which is the Wireless Internet Service Providers Association, and WISPA works to promote the development, advancement, and unification of wireless and the wireless internet service provider uh, industry. Now, lately, there's been a lot of talk about wireless being the cornerstone of our national broadband plan. Uh, people in Washington and everywhere else, you know, are saying that um, this is where we're going, and and Broadband, mobile broadband is going to be key to getting there. Um, I have to say that when you get into the discussion, it looks like a lot of the um, driving force behind the discussion are your uh, wireless cellular uh, industry. And though truly that's one aspect of wireless, I'm not sure that's the best way is that going to be the best long-term solution for a lot of communities and wireless goes much beyond just what we get from Verizon and, and AT&T and so forth. So today, you know, I want to try to get a focus on, you know, a broader picture of wireless, uh looking at some of the different types of wireless technologies. Uh we'll probably talk a little bit about some of the business models and so forth that WISP in particular um are using. And I'm going to just Jump right into it. So, uh, Rick, first, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Craig. We're uh, we're here in Las Vegas at uh, Wisp Palooza, uh, which kicked off today, and I have uh, members from all over the world, um, probably 600, 700 people from uh, mostly the wireless industry. And it's a pretty it's a pretty upbeat crowd. I was down earlier today, uh, checking out a little bit of the goings on and stuff. So you guys seem to have brought a lot of people. In a rough time, in a rough economic time, which is good. There's a lot of excitement in our industry right now. Great. So let's just start off by, um, let's describe the typical wireless ISP, like size, how they work, Uh, where they work. (laughs) I I am not sure there is a typical uh, wireless ISP. However, wireless ISPs in general are... They're leaders in the community. They're entrepreneurs. Um, they are. It could be your next door neighbor that wants broadband at his home, and they currently live in an unserved area. These entrepreneurs learn how to build broadband to their communities, and they've been doing it since uh, approximately 1996. Um, bringing broadband to millions of Americans that would otherwise have no choices. Mm-hmm. I have I have met a few. I have um, written about uh, several. And, in fact, a guest we had on from uh, the CIO of Franklin County, Virginia, was on. And their county network was built by two brothers who decided that they were going to start a wireless ISP business. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that typical, that, that level of entrepreneurship? Well, I'll just give you a, a story from my background. I was I was a farmer, 
Really? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I graduated from Purdue, and I was farming with my father in, in 1995. And I went together. We invested in a dial-up business at the time. And in 1997-98, I was tired of dial-up already. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, what, 15 years ago? Right. That was 14 years ago. <laughs> I wanted something faster in my farm because I needed to relay reports to my, my uh, food processors. Mm-hmm. And um, so we put an antenna up on a tower, and, and we built broadband in my farm five, six miles out into the country. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't even any options in my community of 10,000 people at the time. AT&T DSL wasn't there. There was no cable, Internet. So that business soon developed very quickly, and other surrounding communities uh, contacted us and wanted to build our broadband network to their community. Mm-hmm. So it evolved very quickly, and a wireless uh, provider can can expand that network very quickly where there's a market. Now, today is a different time, obviously. The broadband networks have matured over the last 15 years, but there's still a lot of niche markets in this country that are unserved and, and need help. And wireless is the best technology to get that done in, in record speed. Right. And that was uh, that. That reminds me of, of things that I talked about with um, uh, Terry when she was here. Is in in some respects the wireless ISP business is a ripe entrepreneurial venture. I mean, it doesn't seem like it takes a lot. I mean, there's work. Clearly, there's hard work to make it to, to make it come together. Okay, but you know, as these things go, there's a demand. So the you know the customer base is pretty much identified, and then it's just sort of having the wherewithal to take that first step, mm-hmm. you know, which was a step that you took. And well, you know, the FCC made it easy to. What they did not realize it at the time, but they allocated certain blocks of spectrum for unlicensed use, mm-hmm. and these blocks of spectrum were called junk spectrum at the time. And they developed into you know baby monitors and your home APs that you connect to your your broadband connection with, and lots of other uh, applications. But wireless ISPs use those same frequencies, mm-hmm. so it enables that industry or or any entrepreneur the ability to basically start business tomorrow, serving broadband to his cut, uh, you know, to his community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more involved in that, but the ability to use unlicensed spectrum tomorrow at no cost is a, a, an amazing credit to the advancement of broadband in this nation, and it's something that we really have to think hard about in the spectrum policy of the future. Uh, right now, it, it seems like Congress is is pushing that all future allocations of spectrum become auctioned. In other words, we're going to sell our airwaves to the company that gives us the most money today because we were wanting to pay off the, the national debt. But, I mean, in reality... Well, well, in reality, we're sacrificing the future entrepreneurial spirit of small business and local communities because there will be very few options if we sell all spectrum off. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's basically it's an asset 
Um, it's question marks are out about you know how uh, how scarce is the asset? You know, is there a false scarcity? Um, you know, will these auctions basically just take what we have and put it in the hands of a few companies, which pretty much then creates a monopoly control of that spectrum, which in the long run isn't good for consumers or businesses, for that matter. It, it's hard to say that there's a spectrum of scarcity. Um, it's a big nation. It's a big world. In northern Nevada here, there's very few people that live. There is a ton of spectrum available. There are lots of areas of the country where there's licensed spectrum available that the big companies that own it have no intentions of developing. Mm -hmm. If you're in a metropolitan area, there's just lack of spectrum. There's more people using the, the cell phones and the, the other applications in that spectrum. Mm -hmm. But there's there's not a spectrum scarcity. It, it's, uh, I guess, it's spectrum misuse or lack of use um, in certain areas. So what am I saying? I'm saying that better policy needs to develop, be developed to allow and facilitate the use of those chunks of spectrum, whether it's leasing of the current holders of the spectrum or, or some other kind of um, spectrum database um, system where the local operators in the rural areas of the country cannot get access to that unused spectrum. Right. In other words, make it easier for the smaller regional folks who are making broadband happen, make it easier for them to get a part of that spectrum. A and spectrum then, clearinghouse. Right, okay. And that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, also, I want to try to put it into perspective, okay, because a lot of the driving force in Washington for this whole spectrum discussion are your larger companies, AT&T and Verizon and so forth. But if I look at, say, several months ago and – they were all, you know, enamored, they being the industry, was the fact that they were coming out with LTE or 4G or one of those alphabet soup kinds of, of, of deals where the maximum, uh, the maximum speed would be about 10 to 12 megabits per second. But don't we have with the WISP networks that are out there, uh, wireless networks that are getting 20, 25 megabits uh, speeds? I mean, is that unheard of? Is that the norm? There's, There's... The technology is changing so rapidly. There's wireless ISPs out there today that have equipment in the air that that can do 30, 40, 50 meg. Believe it or not. Wow. Um, there, I have members that are taking customers away from Verizon FiOS, mm -hmm. either because the customer doesn't want to deal with the corporate mentality or the, the outsourced technical support. They want to deal with somebody local. And as long as that local provider can can provide the type of bandwidth that they want at the price point that they want, uh, they'll they'll uh, cut that string to Verizon or AT and T in a minute. Mm -hmm. at, at least as far as their their home broadband. Right. So it seems like we need to, as a country or as a people, you know, those of us who are directly involved with broadband in one way or another, need to open the doors of discussion to 
more than just the broad, the mobile broadband advocates of the large companies, but talk about what smaller companies are doing in smaller markets. Well, I used to buy all my uh, copper infrastructure uh, backbone and, and dial-up lines and everything for my business from AT&T, and we fired them in 2003, and it was the best thing that ever happened to our business. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't building broadband systems does not. Need, we do not need to depend on the ILEX. The technology is available. The know-hows out there. Um, we're not dependent on the big companies anymore. Mm-hmm. We can do it ourselves. Wireless ISPs have been doing it themselves for 15 years now. So in in that respect, if we look at these other um, options, you know, the, the, the small WISP, the regional WISP, and we look at the fact that there's still a lot of um, communities that don't have broadband still, are, is there anything in particular that's keeping the the WISP currently from getting into those unserved areas? Is it that, you know, I don't know if it's a dollar thing or is it they just haven't... You no, know, it's not necessarily a dollar thing. Um, and, and wireless ISPs historically have never uh, been going to the government for a handout. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, there's some that have gotten grants and loans and so forth. But... They grow their networks organically. They they owe very little uh, to their vendors. Um, they're they're cash positive, and but as far as building out into some of these other communities, um, it's probably more of a, how remote is the location from the network? How expensive is it going to cost to build out? Um, is there enough market there mm-hmm. to make it profitable? Uh, it could be a, a scenario where that community has no fiber backbone to it, um, and the cost maybe it's uh, 150 miles away from the closest town. I'm talking extremely rural. right, the extreme rural area, extreme right. rural, mm-hmm. and the cost to build licensed backhaul, wire, licensed wireless backbones, and and, and think of that as very similar to fiber Mm -hmm. technologies, Mm -hmm. uh, but it can be built a lot faster. But maybe the cost to even build that type of a network is too high to support that small local community that has no broadband today. Okay. Um, So I guess that's where I see, you know, you got the, the USF reform going on right now, the Connect America Fund, I think that's what it's called. Right. Um, Somehow, those laws need to be need to take the local and regional companies um, some kind of allocation of those funds probably need to be pointed towards these people out in these communities that are building networks today. Right. The, the way I understand it, I'm not an expert on on the current USF law or what's being proposed, but my understanding is that funding is going to go to one provider in any given district or region. Right, right. So who who's going to get that? It's going to go to legacy USF recipients. And the entrepreneurs and the small businesses are going to be left 
out in the cold. Right. Now, see, this, I just did a uh, survey, a national survey of economic development professionals, and one of the questions I put to them was, you know, with USF reform, uh, there, there are three options where we can continue to give the money to uh, AT&T and Verizon because AT&T and Verizon, basically out of a $4 billion fund, they get those two companies get over $2 billion of that. As I understand the numbers, it's been written up, so I'm pretty sure that those are accurate. Um, you know, So one option was do we continue to give them the money? Second option, do we give the money to regional companies, in other words, regional telcos, regional wireless providers, or do we give the money uh, to the communities and have the communities put together a proposal and, in essence, find the best solution for it? And I think it was about 60% of respondents said, you know, give it to the communities. It comes from the communities. They need to have a voice, even if the money doesn't physically go to them, but they need to have some voice into where all this money goes. I don't typically, I don't disagree with that. However, the management of those funds in the local communities probably needs to be governed by a board that understands technology and the building of broadband systems and communication systems, not just your elected officials right. that, that really can be heavily impacted by um, you know, somebody, the next campaign. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the next campaign or uh, the lobbyist that's a slick talker and right. can come in and convince them that they need to go this direction. Right. It needs. It, it, so, in other words, there needs to be some sort of governing body. Clearly, it's it's got to be that because it needs to have a sub discipline. I mean, there needs to be business sense. I mean, we're looking at the open range uh, fiasco. I mean, two hundred sixty-three million dollars that they got, where I think a lot of local community folks felt that this was a sham from the beginning, right? So, you need people that understand business. You need people that understand technology. Um, you need a representative voice. And I think those collectively, as the community voice, uh, again, they don't necessarily have to have all of the direct oversight and money management, but I think they should have a strong voice mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, in, in what happens. So, um, how do we, how do we overcome the some of these issues? Some of these things are still holding us back. I mean, I know that geography is an issue. But I would contend that some of the problem isn't necessarily or isn't always they don't have broadband, they don't have fast enough broadband, they don't have capacity. So whereas it's a case where we need to go in and provide, you know, additional providers or, or providers that can bring in the bandwidth. Um, communities that are interested in building broadband networks need to get involved with, with associations like WISPA and get educated. Um, these local wireless ISPs, and there may not be one for every community, but like I said earlier, they can be developed with a good business entrepreneur very rapidly. Um, I guess that what I'm trying to get at is community broadband projects seem to have been over the years uh, impacted, uh, you know. Look at look at the Philadelphia projects, and and that was uh, partnered with 
Earthlink. Earthlink. Mm-hmm. Earthlink. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and some of these big corporations that really didn't understand wireless all that well when they started, uh, those community broadband networks often failed. Mm-hmm. When you have local people that have created successful businesses understand the technology and what can be done with it, why pay millions and millions of dollars when there's local people that you can depend on, if right. nothing else, to get some consulting help. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I think I think the time is right for communities to start searching out their, their areas for local operators that have a stake in the game right. in that local region. Right. And uh, one, one, in fact, one of the guests here in the in the chat room, Matt Larson, he's with Ars Technica, um, you know, brings up the point of basically, you know, if there was some sort of voucher program, and I know for the Lifeline program, I've been very specific about that, right? Because it's like it's a ten dollar stipend, basically, we have given people for telephone service, and I want to give them for broadband. And the idea is that they can make a choice. Either they get telephone service, they get broadband service. But I think something along that line in a graduated, you know, form, you know, so that, again, the, the, the community, you know, based on its population, because we all pretty much know everybody pays into the USF funds. It's in our phone bills. So we can easily calculate that a community of um, 20,000 people are putting in X in the fund and a community of uh, 100,000 are putting in Y then why do we not have some structure that says, you know, that's your that's your allocation. What should we do with that allocation for your community? Do you want to band together with five counties, ten counties, and put a proposal together and you go out and you find someone? But the idea being that we put money back to the community or responsibility for the money back to the community to let them make good decisions or at least better decisions about what makes sense for them. Yeah, I, you know, back when the National Broadband Plan was being developed, I participated in uh, in some of those meetings in D.C. with uh, an independent think tank group, and it was really kind of amazing to me. I mean, I'm a I'm a local farmer from Indiana, and here I go to Washington D.C. and and I hear all these politicians and uh, people in think tanks talking about building fiber to every home in in the nation by a year, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, 2020 or whatever. And it seemed almost like such a waste of time because, well, that was pre-2008. Mm-hmm. 2008, and the stock market crash in 2008 really impacted, in my mind, the build-out of broadband systems. Mm-hmm. And the goals of having 100 meg fiber to every home pretty much went out the window overnight. Right. You know, to every home in the United States. It's a big country, and it's not going to happen. You want to build out rapid deployments of broadband systems, you have to look at wireless. Uh, It's the most affordable deployment scheme today, even if it is just a temporary solution. A bridge. A bridge. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's millions of Americas that need broadband to do daily tasks anymore that have no access to mm-hmm. And whether it's Connect America funds, whether it's public-private partnerships, um, wireless is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not necessarily – we're in the fixed wireless industry. Uh, my, my members don't necessarily uh, sell cell phones. 
that you can carry around with you and, and deploy systems that could do that. They they get they build systems that get good broadband to a home. Right. Or a business. Or a business. Right. Lots of businesses. Mm-hmm. And they really you can do fifty to a hundred megs and, and actually there's new technology coming out now that you can do almost gigabit speeds over wireless. That's going to be pretty it impressive. Is. I'm assuming that we're still in the early stages and, yeah. and things have to be hammered out. But I know that when I had the um, uh, Sandy Terry was on, uh, we uh, talked about the fact that you know her uh, wisp there in, in Franklin County, you know, as an experiment, you know, pushed the speed as much as they could because they just bought some new technology, and you know, and they got some pretty impressive speeds. Um, in, in that community, you know, but the point being was that there's new stuff all the time, and we just got to kind of figure out how to open the door to that. And um, you and I talked earlier today about this, the, the whole, like, how easy is it to start a business? Because in Franklin County scenario, they, the county, said, okay, we have a need, and they were the first customer of the WISP. And so basically they gave the WISP its start by doing partial trade-out, they gave them access to vertical assets, mm-hmm. and then they also though said, okay, we got to buy X amount of services because we have these various offices to right. run and so forth. Right. And and there's an example of the partnership. But then the WISP was then saying, okay, we can bring in newer technology to help boost the speed, and we can kind of move this thing forward and get you what you need. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a scenario maybe that we need to be looking at more in the local areas. Uh, you know, that's it's. Nothing new. Um, I was doing deals like that back in in the early or late 1990s. Uh, you know, you just have to to work with that local community, and sometimes you hit a council or a, a you know a city board or whatever that's resistant because you know they're a wisp technic- typically isn't going to pay twenty five hundred dollars a month to be on the water tower like a mm. cell company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's a different model, um, but it's an education thing. And as long as the communities understand that everybody's in this game, or not game, but everybody's working together to solve that community's broadband unserved problems, whatever, right. um, you can get there. Uh, are you going to have to be a little bit flexible? Both sides are going to have to be flexible. Sure. Right, exactly. But, uh, yeah, because I'm going to talk fixed, about this. A fixed provider, a fixed wireless provider, 10 years ago, the equipment was relatively new. It it kind of got a bad rap because of the, the immature technology. Today, these networks are mature. These networks are pretty much rock solid. With redundant feeds to towers, and you're not going to get that kind of service with mobile broadband. Right. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I don't care what 4G, LTE, they may claim that they're going to get 10 meg to the phone. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine until you load up that cell site with you know, thousands of people with a mobile phone. You walk into a building or down in a basement, you still want your internet to work. Right, right. What you don't understand, though, is when you get in those locations, you don't have as good a signal back to the tower. 
Right. Right. Exactly. The tower and the capacity of the tower is heavily impacted by all these cell phone customers out there with bad connections. You're talking about a little tiny antenna in the right, cell phones. Right, exactly. And uh, a wireless, a fixed wireless ISP, they have an antenna pointed right at the tower. They're tuned in to get the best signal as possible. Right. And they're very, it's very good technology. Right. Now, one of the things I'm going to talk about, I'm doing the, um, the in my in my keynote presentation to uh, to the conference, is that um, a lot of these discussions about broadband and then the solutions that make sense need to be driven from the community and the community needs perspective, not from the marketers of technologies perspective. Like the whole mobile broadband thing has become a marketing issue. We're going to have 4G. We're going to have LTE. And these things are going to have all this speed and all this, that, and the other. And it's all marketing jargon and it's all marketing hype. But if you go to the community and say, well, what do you need? Well, I need to be able to run uh, you know, an online accounting package for my business. I need to be able to do a video conference from my home or my office. Right? You start defining people's needs. You start finding out that mobility is useful because people want to have some access while they're mobile, but it's not necessarily that they expect to do the chunk of their business while they're mobile or in motion for that matter. Even if I am mobile, I will stop somewhere before I load up a spreadsheet. I mean, I'm not walking down the street, you know, doing all these great computing tasks. I'm going somewhere to sit down and do a job. And I think that when we start looking at it from that needs perspective, then all of a sudden we start going, well, what do we need mobile for? I mean, what do we get by mobile? You know, our our bigger need is this point to point? Our bigger need is this office to office. You know, our bigger need is exactly. we've got you know a hundred people moving into this office complex, and they have that space. They have that space. They have to have this kind of connectivity, and you build that out. But you're building it from a needs perspective, not a you know the latest marketing brochure perspective. You know, there's there's a good place for for mobile broadband. It's here. We can't live without it. Uh, we recognize that. But also, you have to consider that the mobile broadband providers are already capping the amount of data that you can use right. without raising your bill. And uh, you can have some pretty scary cell phone bills uh, with data packages. If you're trying to use them for your major applications, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, mm-hmm. or downloading uh, movies and that type of thing to your phone. Those are massive bandwidth hogs, and your your cell phone bills is going to go out of out of control. Right. So what? Okay. So what are the cell phone companies doing? They're offloading. The, you, my new Droid Bionic has. If there's a Wi-Fi network in the neighborhood, it automatically connects. You know. So if I'm in my office or my home. My cell phone is going to basically connect to my wireless access point in my home and mm-hmm. not use the data network. Right, and that's kind of that's very common now. The newer newer smartphones are doing that. So uh, Verizon or an AT and T is offloading the bandwidth requirements off of their network onto somebody else's network. Mm-hmm. It's great technology, but as far as as 
far as running business applications, I would never dream about trying to run a business off a cell phone broadband connection. Right. It's just, it's not practical. It is not practical. It is, I would not want to risk a business running a, trying to run a business off a cell phone. Right. And or, I think, or any other device that connects to a cell phone. Right. And I think it even goes further than that because if we look at personal economic development, um, basically how we make it so that the individual can improve their uh, personal wealth, either by improving their job skills, their education, uh, being able to start an entrepreneurial business. You know, this was, a, this was a question or a series of questions in the survey was talking about um, the individual, right? And when they look at, you know, what does it take to make the individual more productive at work when you talk about the Internet? What does it take to make an individual who may uh, need to improve their education, what are they going to need? Well, they're going to need a lot of capacity. They're not going to be doing most of this stuff mobile. They may go somewhere to get to a place to do it, but for the most part, those tasks and then coming down to the thing of like if I'm going to run a home-based business, right, I'm going to do that at home. Now, what we have is a lot of hype pushing the smartphone and, you know, your smartphone can take all of these individuals, you know, low-income individuals and get them on the Internet and they can be productive and all of this. And I will grant that it gives you connectivity, but I don't necessarily say that it gives you the application to make that person that productive worker, professional, entrepreneur. No, there's nothing to ensure that you're going to make anybody productive by giving them a broadband connection. Are they going to use it for Facebook and watching movies or whatever? Or are they going to use it for business applications? And and I think that's more of a an educational thing. Uh, you know, we need to keep supporting our schools and, mm-hmm. and developing the technology. And, and we need to do a better job of educating our children how to be entrepreneurs and how to think for themselves. Mm-hmm. There are so many opportunities in this country to to make something of your life and to build a business on your own. I'm not just talking about wireless ISPs. I'm mm-hmm. talking about any business. You know, I remember back when I was in school and, and my teachers would say, you know, you can be anything you want when right. you grow up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's common. Um, you know, I was a farmer. I built a wireless ISP, and and now I'm I'm running a pretty darn fast-growing trade association, mm-hmm. and and putting together a trade show here in Vegas. I, you can do anything you want. The opportunities are there, mm-hmm. uh, but we can't make our children robots. Right. Right. So how do we how do we tackle um, in I, the concept sorry, of the, I kind of got off topic. That, that's all right. We, you know, yeah, it's good to kind of hear a little bit of perspective because I will contend that again, it's not the technology; it's all these attendant things that go along with it that that matter. Which brings me to a question of um, if if I, as a community, want to take advantage of the ability to have a WISP start or have their business expand and have them grow, what does a community need to do? to foster the growth of a WISP that then will in, improve or increase their broadband capacity, capability. You know, there, there's lots of communities out there with remote facilities all over town. 
uh, even maybe sewage departments outside of town or, or whatever that need that broadband internet access, mm-hmm. and and may maybe some city uh, you know the uh, city building has broadband, but some of these remote facilities don't. You know, so you work with wireless internet provider. This is mm-hmm. you know a partnership type deal, and they could build that network and build that broadband system out to those remote facilities. I did that for years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that was part of the deal. Yes, i got to use your city water tower or the police station tower or whatever to, you know, sell service to my customers. Uh, but I was also providing a service to them. Mm-hmm. So it's a partnership thing. Uh, it's a win-win. Right. When when the community and the wireless ISP, you're working, especially in the unlicensed spectrum, you're working with limited blocks of spectrum. Mm-hmm. And if the community is building a wireless broadband network and a local wireless ISPs building one, there's interference issues there. Mm-hmm. But if they're working together and coordinate the frequencies and using GPS sync timing mecha technologies and so forth, everybody's going to have a better network because you're not pounding your fist together. You're, you know, you're you're, you're working kind of, right. You're, you're building is. something collectively, exactly, and then that kind of thing um, makes a difference. Again, you know, point coming back to the to, to the survey, it seems that four times the percent. So what is it? Four times the percentage of folks who um, believe in public-private partnerships was four times as high among rural respondents than urban respondents, mm-hmm. which I found interesting because I would have thought. Well, a big city naturally they're going to look for partners and they're going to go chasing broadband in that fashion. But it seems that it's the rural areas that have gone full on board with the idea of of the partnership. They get it, right? Yeah, they get it, and and the metropolitan areas. And in fact, I I actually when I was in business sold a fiber backbone to a metropolitan wireless network. Mm-hmm. They they went with some big consulting company, nationwide consulting company to build this wireless network. After year three, they had put in $22.2 million into this network. Wow. And they they stopped paying their fiber bill. <laughs> Holy mackerel. So I went down to the city council meeting, and, and I'm like, what's going on here? I mean, we got a contract. Why aren't you paying your fiber bill? And I said, well, you know, we've got $2.2 million invested in this community network, and I said, so how many customers do you have? They said, 17. Wow. Paying $11 a month. Somebody didn't do good planning on that $380 or something like that. Uh, my mouse off $340. Right. Um, and their fiber bill was over $5,000 a month. Yeah. You know, There's just no intelligence there with some of those those types of things. Right. Um, you know, they build a wireless network to provide free services all over town. It was a mesh network. Oh, it was back in the mini Wi-Fi days? Had, yeah, mini Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They, uh-huh. they already had DSL and cable access. Right. And who wants free when you can get good service? Right. Not that wireless networks aren't good service, but the, some of that mesh technology back there four or five years ago was was not well designed. Right. There was definitely there wireless, was definitely some wireless issues. ISPs do a much better job designing their networks than some of those mesh networks were. That's that's interesting. 
So, um, so we talked about moving moving things forward. We talked about the you know the need for uh, for for partnerships. What about the issue? And I've heard a number of folks, providers of various, not just the wireless ones, talk about local barriers that communities put up. Like for example, when Google's um, point person on the Google Gigabit project like, did a presentation a couple of weeks ago, he talked about the fact that the state of California has a law that basically the way it's written, a single person could hold up a broadband project for months with like no end in sight to the holdup. And I think a number of folks in, in the ISP world feel like, you know, there are times when communities' legalities can become the gating factor. That can be the barrier. Is there a lot of that still, or do you see maybe some changing in local government's feeling about it? Yeah, WISP has got members all over the nation, and uh, every one of them probably has different challenges from local zoning uh, rules and regulations to uh, political obstacles to uh, geog- geographical obstacles, you know, mm-hmm. every every site is different, every region is different. Um, you know, I got areas where they can't build a, a cell tower. I mean, it's, mm, a, right. it's a five-year project to to build any kind of a tower in a in a certain community. Mm-hmm. You know, things need to be done. Uh, you know, other things like pole attachment rights. Well, you, yeah, a a wireless provider normally can't get pole attachment rights to put wireless access points on telephone poles or run fiber between telephone poles because they're not uh, a CLEC or an ILEC and uh, a cable company. I mean, there's there's regulatory issues there, and and all those issues are compounding the problem of uh, rapid deployment of broadband systems. So it sounds like one of the early things that a WISP needs to do is figure out how to um, counter the, um, the the local legalities, not go around it, but basically how they're going to deal with it. Or they need to figure out how to develop some political clout so they can yeah. walk in and say, look, you know, you're, you've got this much opportunity in economic development that you're not seeing because we can't move this project forward. So why don't you find a way to fast track this? Uh, WISP are very good about finding ways around those regulatory <laughs> issues. Uh, you know, whether it's working with a homeowner and putting a wireless access point on a house because they can't up on a mountaintop or something because they can't build a tower, mm-hmm. or um, you know, working with the city or or other types of towers, you know, tall buildings and stuff to make things happen. Mm-hmm. There's ways to get around it. As far as the political clout, uh, you know, that's that's really one of the important factors of what a you know a trade association like ours is that's kind of where we come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh basically banding the whole industry together. And to try and to address the some of these was, challenges. Is it easy? Heavens no it's not easy. Uh, we have our challenges. Uh we have you know, we don't have millions and almost billions of dollars to spend on lobbying like some right, of these big right. companies and cable companies. And I have to cross the bear. But what we do have, is, and we do prove every day, is we are we are serving areas of the country that normally these big companies won't serve. Right. 
and, and we're doing it and we're continuing to build out. I think you brought up something earlier about how can we build faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least move I forward. Almost, I almost <laughs> disagree with that because my members are growing their businesses about as fast as they possibly can. So there is a lot of growth and momentum happening among WISP. Oh, heavens, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask this question. One of the one of the fears with a lot of these middle mile projects is that um, the money is designated for middle mile, and that's great. And people in various counties and communities get very excited because there's a middle mile network coming to town. They don't realize that the last mile still is a hill to be climbed that somebody has to address. And then some of us folks will look at it and go, well, what is there to prevent the same kind of situation which got us into the broadband stimulus in the first place, which is there are communities in need and the private sector won't go there because they can't see a profit. So now we have made it easier by building the middle mile network. and We've given them a backhaul option and all the rest of it, but there's still dollars to be spent on the last mile part, aren't we still going to run into cases where, you know, certain types of companies aren't going to build a last mile because they can't see a profit in it? Exactly. <laughs> certain types of companies aren't going to build that last mile. So the that's use that you answered your own question. But then is the WISP the one to ride to the rescue? WISP aren't certain type of company. Okay. <laughs> they... They will build wherever wherever there's a need, pretty much. Right. And uh, it doesn't take a large amount of customers in any given area to start showing a profit. Right. You don't have to have thousands of customers to show a profit in a wireless broadband scenario. You can make a profit on 100 customers. Right. And, in fact, I had an interview with a... Uh, uh, community Three Lakes, Wisconsin. They've got about 2,200 people in a fairly, well, for me, I mean, for 2,200 people spread over 99 square miles, I think that would, would rank as fairly, you know, sparsely populated. And the wireless company in the area have been reluctant to try to approach that community because my guess is they kept thinking in the bigger numbers. Well, we need, like, you know, Two three thousand people as customers. They only have twenty two hundred people in total, and then the city um, and that's leadership. People. That's people. In that's total. people. That's not households. Right, 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 right. That's just people. Right. That's your total population. So the the, the local um, government folks had a fair. You know, your basic county fair, but it was just for technology. Right. To show there are these people there and that, that needed the technology. So two hundred people show up at the fair. So the the wireless company, I think they probably fall into the WISP category. So the the WISP all of a sudden starts doing the calculation and realizes that, you know, I only need 50. I need 50 customers. You know, we need, like, X number of towers. They started doing the math, and they started really, like, scoping it out because clearly here were people who wanted it. So these were people that were willing to spend money, but he had to kind of rethink his reluctance in the context of, well, what do I really need to make it be profitable? And then he figured out, well, I can get that at 50 customers. And then the community said, okay, well, look, what if we can both, you know, bring these customers to the table? you got to close them. you got to sell them, whatever. Um, but we also, because we have relationships with several other towns in the county, that we introduce you to them. 
So now the WISP is looking at, um, you know, there's enough people in the one in three lakes to make a profit, mm -hmm. but on top of that, they're going to open up other opportunities in other communities that I might not be able to get to as easily. Yeah. Right. By, but basically, it comes down to, you know, rethinking that question of profit, not rethinking whether I should have profit, but what do I need to be profitable? Well, I don't know at at, at 50 people in a given community whether whether you base your decision on whether to do that on the other communities around it. Mm -hmm. uh, that first build-out needs to make sense, but if you're not talking at 50 customers a month, you're not talking about a major investment here. Mm -hmm. If that's what it takes to be profitable, 50 customers, $50 a month, $2,500 a month. Duh, you know. Because <laughs> there's not a major... You know, overhead issue here. No. I mean, you know, you've got, and especially if the community cooperates and gives you the access, you know, you get the right of way and you don't have to, like, you know, get an act of Congress to, to get that particular uh, issue resolved. It seems like in the in the wireless community, the numbers just aren't in the wireless community. In, in the places where there's a wireless need, the numbers just don't seem to be as astronomical as when they start talking policy in Washington and they talk about, oh, we need, you know, fifty million billion dollars to, you know, be able to build a network and every installation's gotta be, you know, all these mega bucks just around big numbers. Yeah, well I'm probably not gonna be very popular after this uh, this radio interview. <laughs> oh, you know, but, some days I think I'm never that you know, popular like, anyway. But that's all right. I'm gonna tell you to tell you the way it is and, and we don't need to spend millions and billions of dollars on these local community broadband networks. It can be done so cost effectively and the the community could use that money for something else. Right. Education and roads and we need to put America back to work. Right. And Wireless ISPs, uh, they hire local people. They take their money, goes back into the local communities, and these rural communities are suffering today. People, you know, rural erode population erosion. They're all gone to the cities because of lack of broadband systems or lack of jobs or whatever. We need to be investing back in these local communities and back in small businesses. Right. That's uh, it. We got to stop subsidizing both big corporations. That uh, you know, ship the jobs overseas or right. build the products overseas. Well, it's time we take care of America and take care of the the local communities and the small businesses. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like the logical thing that you would think more people would get involved in. Let's. Uh, we've just got about. Uh, and that was not a political statement. <laughs> no, it was a practical statement. It was a practical statement. And. White space. White space is being talked about in some circles, some articles. I'm not sure how knowledgeable you know some of the, some of the sources are, but this is supposed to be a big panacea, is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the FCC allocated the the TV white spaces to uh, unlicensed a few years ago, and okay, so now you have companies developing the equipment, and uh, you know the Part of the TV white spaces allocation was that we needed to have these spectrum databases, so the the equipment will automatically log into the database, mm -hmm. so to minimize interference issues in the TV spectrum. Great concept, and there's Google and Spectrum Bridge and 
and Telcordia and, and numerous other ones have been developed. Uh, now, money crunch. You know, mm -hmm. we got a we got a national debt, and like I said earlier, Congress now wants to auction all that spectrum off. Mm -hmm. All of it, you know, all spectrum. They, they, I've even heard that they want to license or auction off unlicensed allocations. Oh, there was that this <laughs> idea that's floating around. This, uh, oh, jeez. It's, uh, it's crazy, and uh, it's the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to sacrifice, basically to make monopolies, duopolies out of the big phone companies. Mm hmm um, for what uh, a, a one-time money grab? That's mm -hmm. maybe what one percent of the national debt. I was gonna say how much? How much of the national debt are you gonna offset? Not much at all. You know, really and truly. So that brings up to me an interesting question, and it rides on the heels of a comment that was made here in the uh, in, in the chat room, where um, someone was saying they built a uh, a basic wireless uh, setup. Got the the hall backhaul stuff in place. They you know they used the uh, one of the local water towers and so forth. They basically built a system for five grand that's delivering 25 megs of speed, mm -hmm. right? So there are stories like this elsewhere, and there are opportunities like this if people did the math and they did the homework. What can communities do to try to bring this? into and become part of the national discussion. Because, like, you and I talk, we have these conferences, obviously, and people talk, but, you know, some days you feel like there's no there's no one listening to standing. Mm. How do you get people to listen? How do you get people, I mean, what could, should communities do? How aggressive should they be at trying to educate? You know, yeah, that's a good point, and we, we probably need to have better open forums and, and uh, discussions. Uh, I, I know I went to a local community here about six months ago, and it's a three-county area in western Indiana, and I spoke to him for about an hour, hour and a half, something like that. Maybe it was probably two hours, actually. And at the end of it, they, their comments were, we have never learned so much in two hours. They're, they're, <laughs> they said our, our minds are runneth over, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're exploding with information. And, you know, communities need to find a good consultant and somebody that's going to tell them the, the hard truths and, and what can be done. Um, you know, since that time six months ago, um, now there's fiber in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, fiber backbone. Oh, right. Not fiber to every place. Mm -hmm. And they've got uh, two brand new wireless providers in the area. Discussion makes things happen, and finding the right people and the right person to talk to um, that knows how to make things happen or bring parties together mm -hmm. that can make things happen is, is the key. Right. Can that be done everywhere? Probably not. But Anywhere you can make a difference, it does indeed matter. Yeah. So, um, in, our, in our last minute here, what are... Has two, it been an hour already? Almost. Almost. We've been going uh, 55 minutes. Um, it's so much fun when you're uh, rock and rolling like this. So, two things that communities can do to maximize a partnership relationship with a WISP. What are they, do you think? Um, well, get with Wispapalooza, I mean, not Wispapalooza, but uh, 
get with uh, WISPA, we have a uh, now a zip code search feature. Uh, we're going to have a new website coming out. I was hoping to get it done by WISPA Palooza, but we're probably running two weeks behind. Mm -hmm. um, we all of our wireless ISPs have turned in their zip codes that they service, mm -hmm. and a consumer can now go on and punch in their zip code and see if there's any wireless ISPs. There. Ah, right. Okay, cool. So a community can easily find, you know, they maybe they enter 10, 15, 20 zip codes around them. Mm -hmm. They may not have one in their community today, but there may be somebody around them. They can find out who those companies are. Right, right. Uh, wireless ISPs, being small businesses and, and taking care of their customers and building their networks is often more important to them than marketing their mm -hmm. businesses. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the things WISP is doing is, is how to bring those potential customers to the wireless ISPs, you know, in a banding together to make things happen. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so we have a good database of, of operators. Uh, any community can send me an email to uh, rharnish at wispa.org, mm -hmm. and I can help them through that process of finding. I'm typically going to send one of our members mm -hmm. uh, in that local area to the community rather than maybe a wireless ISP that's not supporting our trade association. Right, right. I'm, I'm obviously going to take care of my members first. Right. But, I mean, part of the mem part of the reason that they're members is to be be better professionals at what they exactly. do. Which, if you're going to be, you know, if you look at it from the community perspective, then if you're going to, you know, birth a wits in your community, then probably your advice, you know, as a community, well, maybe you want to go check out this organization and, mm -hmm. you know, be a member because that gives you some leverage and, 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 and so forth. And I think that makes, um, you know, and that makes for a good, uh, for a good strategy. Any any parting words? We've got two minutes. Well, um, you know, this. let's just jump back to Wispapalooza here. This, this concept of this trade show, this is our third trade show now. Um, each one of them seems to be building on one another, and, and the uh, uh, each one's getting bigger and bigger. Uh, this shows are, it's the biggest trade show, the Internet service provider industry. Mm -hmm. whether wireless or not wireless, mm -hmm. has seen probably since 2002, 2003. So, um, like I said, there's lots of excitement. we got 60 exhibitors here, um, over 600 people, and uh, I need to get back to it probably and <laughs> find out what's happening. Well, we need to get down right. And, and actually, Craig, you're doing a keynote speech for us here at lunch, and, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Great. Well, this has been a wonderful session. Uh, we've got good feedback from our uh, our chat room audience. I want to um, thank our media sponsors, Community uh, um, Broadband Communities Magazine, GigaOM. Uh, this has been good. And also, thank you, our audience out there. Uh, on Wednesday this week, we're going to talk about libraries. Shh, not very loudly. We're going to talk about libraries as a central point uh, for for getting broadband anchored into a uh, into a community, and I think that's going to be very valuable. Uh, some very valuable lessons are going to come out of that discussion. So, Rick, again, thank you very much thank for being a guest on the show, and the rest of you have a great day, and we'll see you soon.